Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 106, air date September 20th, 2016. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. It is my pleasure to introduce to the stage momentarily Dr. V.A. Shiva Ayaduri from the class of 1981 of Livingston High School. The inventor of email, Dr. Ayaduri started this project when he was 14 years old and still a student here at LHS. Dr. Ayaduri is a scientist, technologist, entrepreneur, author, and educator. He's earned four degrees from MIT, spanning the fields of electrical engineering, computer science, media arts and sciences, applied mechanics, and systems biology. He is a Fulbright Scholar, a Lemelson MIT Award Finalist, and first Outstanding Scientist Technologist of Indian origin. Among his many accomplishments, he is the founder of Innovations Corps, a nonprofit, the chairman and CEO of Cytosolve Incorporated, General Interactives LLC, and a board member of Echomail Incorporated and Enterprise Email Management. Last year, he was nominated to receive the President's National Medal of Technology and Innovation for 2014. Since being inducted into the Livingston High School Hall of Fame in 2014, Dr. Ayaduri has been a tremendous support to Livingston High School. Not only does he encourage our students to explore questions about our world through authentic research, but he has also provided us with opportunities to do so by including our science research program in his work with genetically modified organisms, which we will hear more about throughout the course of this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to welcome back to Livingston High School, Dr. V.A. Shiva Ayaduri. All right, thank you, Mark. I want to thank Mark, you know, the um, Livingston School Board, right, who really made this happen in terms of getting the, uh, you know, the approval to do this, because it's a very interesting project. You see, when I was a Livingston High School student, there was a uh, very interesting essay my AP English teacher had me read. It's called Two Cultures. If you don't know it, you should write it down by C.P. Snow. And it's a very interesting essay because C.P. Snow argues that it's not only sufficient that if you're a scientist that you also learn humanities, but also the people on the humanities should learn science. Basically that you need to bridge these two worlds. So it's a great, great essay if you haven't read it. But that's what compelled me in many ways and motivated me to participate. And I, I put a lot of my time not only to being a scientist, but what some would call a, an active citizen. In the sense it's not sufficient to do science, but you have to participate in the real world. So for me, being able to come back to Livingston High School, work with the students, and not only do science with the students, but to show how science can affect public policy, I think it's an extremely important part of a holistic education. So, and uh, I want to thank all of you for coming today because it takes a lot, you know, Christmas is approaching for you guys to get in your cars and come here. So I hope today is going to be both entertaining and educational and also somewhat provocative. Um, so we've set uh, the agenda just to let you know it is, it is going to be uh, educational, so keep your eyes awake, but hopefully it will keep you entertained. But um, 
Mark has done the introductions, I'm going to give you a little bit of the motivation of what really, at a deep personal level, moves me to do this research. And then after that, uh, Mr. Brian Carey, uh, the, the science supervisor, and the students are going to come up on stage, and they're going to actually share with you the research that they did, which actually got published. And what's uh, enormously important is that they're actually co-authors on this paper. It's a science paper, but very few science students ever get to be co-authors on a peer-reviewed paper. So again, this is a testament to the Livingston High School educational system, the students, and the ability uh, when we approach Mark you know, and the Livingston school system to, to do something out of the box in terms of collaborating with industry. So uh, they're going to present first. And then Dr. Prabhakar Dionikar, who's one of my colleagues, will present paper two and three, uh, which talks really about you know, the effects of oxidative stress on plants. And then the last paper I'm going to come back and present, which really talks about what genetically modified organisms are actually doing to plant physiology. And then we're going to open it up to Q&A. So there's two mics set up, one on the left and the right. And I hope you guys, no question is too intelligent or not so intelligent. They're all good questions. And it's really part of this is to educate the public. We're videotaping it. And we'll put it, we'll edit it, and we'll put it up on the Livingston High School site plus on our site. Um, and that's going to be the evening. So let me, uh, Mark just gave his intro. Let me um, tell you a little bit about what motivated this. Um, has anyone seen this movie? The Big Short? What's that? You saw the trailer. Well, you have to see it. And I'll give you, you know, I, I get it because um, I, ha I, got, I got access to one of the previews, but it's a great movie. And what you see in this picture is Christian Bale's one of the main actors, Brad Pitt, very interesting star-studded cast. But what you notice is it's actually the story of Michael Burry, who's the gentleman who's on the far right. You notice what he's doing. He's studying actually thousands and thousands of mortgage payments. And with Michael Burry, almost five, six years before the financial collapse occurred, was actually, go he did his homework. He actually went and he started studying at the ground level what was going on with, with mortgages. And he was noticing people were being delinquent. They weren't going to pay them. And he actually predicted that the collapse would start occurring in 2007. The reason I want to bring this up is we live in a world where there's actual truth and then there's PR. Right? There's public relations and then there's truth. There is something called truth. And the numbers, frankly, don't lie if you're willing to do your homework, which is what we're supposed to learn in high school and hopefully when we get older. And what the movie is about is the fact that this guy, who was actually a medical doctor, who got into, became a hedge fund manager, actually noticed this. He tried to tell everyone this. No one listened. And he went and shorted the whole market. And he ended up making, I think, about $700 million on it. But the point is he did his homework. And it's a great, great way to start this because the students and, you know, obviously through some of the support we gave them, did their homework. But when, we, when you go and do the homework, it's hard to get over the hype. And what we want to do, part of this um, exercise today, is to get over the hype of what goes on in the world today. Um, one of the things I wanted to share with you, as Mark said, you know, one of the interesting experiences I had was actually having the opportunity to invent email. And it's an interesting story, not only in the fact that it was done by a high school student who came from Livingston, but also some of the circumstances, which also created controversy. But just to set the record straight, many of you over the age of 40 may know, in the old days, we had this thing called the inner office mail system. A secretary, always a woman, had the folders, the inbox, the outbox. Everyone remember this? And she would write this thing called a memo, and she would stick it into an envelope, 
and then it got sent through these pneumatic tubes. This is what I did at Rutgers, what was then known in University of Medicine Dentistry in New Jersey. So I was given the opportunity. The school system of Livingston, again, showed out-of-the-box thinking. They allowed me to go and work in Newark to convert this to the electronic form. By the way, this is how people sent mail. It was called the inner office mail system. And actually, that woman right there, if I can put it right here, is Stella Oleksiak, who was the independent study coordinator at Livingston, who worked with the school board here to change the rules so I could go do that. Um, but email is a product of Livingston High School. At least Livingston High School should claim partial credit for the invention of email. And I called it email, a term never used before in the English language. And that's the official code that's in the Smithsonian. And um, all of this went into the Smithsonian on uh, February 16, 2012. Dr. Michelson was my mentor. And then I went off to MIT, did four degrees, as Mark said. And uh, in 2011, when my mom was dying of pulmonary fibrosis in a suitcase, she had saved all these artifacts, and uh, including, by the way, this is when I first went into MIT in the class of 81, 85, they had the fact that this one, one of the three kids entering the MIT class had invented this email system. And that's, by the way, the official copyright for email. In those days, that was the only way you could copyright software. I mean, the only way to protect software inventions was not through patents. The Supreme Court didn't even know what software was. And the only way to do that was through um, copyright. But the critical thing I learned when I built that email system, because that's what it is, email is not the simple exchange of text messages. Wikipedia has got this wrong, and the claim is that the military did this, but, it, but they didn't. Email was done by a Livingston High School student, but the key thing that student learned was about systems. And that's what we're going to talk about today, because a system is a complex thing. It's not just any one thing. Well, anyway, some of you may know this went into the Smithsonian February 16th, and a Washington Post reporter wrote this article, and it created an interesting controversy. People called me all sorts of names, and you can see some of those. Um, it created controversy because it created controversy because the notion was that great innovation can only come out of places like MIT and Silicon Valley that could definitely not come from a high school student. And people called me all sorts of names, interestingly enough. And you can see some of these. So it was not easy to do this, but what I had to do was I had to start thinking about what was the context of all this vitriol. And that was an educational process because you start seeing um, what you do actually affects a larger scheme of things. In fact, a Wikipedia editor wrote this, and I'll leave it up there as you do, but I'll summarize it. Essentially, this is a Wikipedia editor who tried to change the article on Wikipedia about the facts, and he was called all sorts of names. And he said, you know, the invention of email is so volatile, it's more even volatile than the Second Amendment and also abortion. And why is that? Because the fact is a narrative, we have narratives in this world, that the narrative was that email must have been created by a big institution. It could not have been done in Newark. And that's really the underlying issue, is that who defines these narratives? Who's an innovator? What truth is? Everyone understand what I'm saying? And these are the critical things that we need to you know, bring out into our educational system. So I wanted, I wanted to share that with you. But the key thing that I learned from building that email system was how systems work, but I also had a deep love of medicine. So in and out of MIT, uh, what we're going to talk today about is systems. The students will talk about but we today in medicine or in biology see the body as parts. We don't see it as a whole human. So if you go to a doctor today, 
the doctor actually takes you to multiple different specialists, right? So if you have a headache, you may see four or five specialists. The body is not seen holistically. Um, it's very much like the blind men. Everyone know the story? The king asked the blind men to look at an elephant. And each of the blind men think the elephant's different things. One thinks it's a brush, another thinks uh, it's a tree because he feels a tree trunks, another thing it's a wall, and they end up with something like this, okay? So this is where biology was, frankly, up until 2003, because when the Genome Project ended, people thought that we are our genes, that you study parts of the problem, and each person is publishing pieces. However, everything changed in 2003, and the reason it changed was in the mid-90s when we entered the Human Genome Project, everyone familiar with this? It was a project to really sequence a human genome. And what we learned in the Human Genome Project was we started thinking in the early 90s of what made a human being different than a worm. We knew a worm had about 20,000 genes. And we thought what made us more smarter and more different was the number of genes. So the estimate was a human being had 100,000 genes. When the Genome Project ends, as you can see in this graph, it turns out we have the same number of genes as a worm. We have about 20,000 genes. So you can't link complexity to the number of parts. All right? So that led into a very different field saying, look, we need to understand the human body more holistically. And that led into this field called systems biology. And what that said was, if you want to understand the whole, by the way, not only a whole human being, but the whole plant, a whole organism, you can look at it as its organs, but you have to interconnect all of these, the DNA, the molecular pathways, et cetera. So when I came back in 2003, what we, one of the challenges was, could you model the entire human cell? And by the way, not only the human cell, but any cell. And if you think about the cell as an interconnection of these molecular pathways, right? And this is just a depiction of it. It's not exactly what it looks like. Then how do you model something like this? And the theory was, if we could model everything that's going on in your body, then we could predict things. We could create medicines faster and cheaper and also probably eliminate animal testing. So that led, led to my work where we looked at the, this is, by the way, a molecular pathway, all right? Molecule A reacts with B. These are what I call those John Madden diagrams that you see sometimes on Monday night or Sunday night football. And these were being converted to mathematical models. And the idea was, if we could connect all these models together, we could then understand and predict what was going on at the cellular level. So this led to another invention we did that came out of my work at MIT called Cytosolve. So if email was the electronic version of the inner office mail system, Cytosol was the electronic version of the human cellular system. So I'm just going to fly through this. this. This was the basis of my thesis, my PhD work. We published quite a number of papers on this. The reason I'm sharing this with you is because this is a core technology that was used in this GMO debate today. Um, so this has been published. It's been validated. In fact, what got very interesting was um, a few years ago, we actually used this technology to model the molecular pathways of pancreatic cancer. We went through the 262 known drugs for cancer, and we found a bicombination drug that did better than the gold standard. We got clinical approval by the FDA, and now we've spun it out into a new company with MD Anderson, the number one cancer clinic. So the point is this technology is real time. We're using it to actually solve major diseases. So how did I get involved in the GMO piece? So in 2014, I saw this interesting. Now, MIT Technology Review is one of the most eminent technology journals in the world. And I saw this interesting front page article, Buy Fresh, Buy GMO. There's no question mark here, right? 
It's actually, it looks like an advertisement, doesn't it? And it, dis it's con it concerned me. Why was MIT, my alma mater, essentially buying an ad for GMOs? Given that there was very little uh, research, frankly, done to prove their safety, as far as I knew. So that really started our journey and where it brings us to today. So what you're seeing here is a series of four papers that we worked together with the students at Livingston High School, Brian and the team, to publish. The first paper uh, is what the students are going to talk about. That was a foundational paper that led to these other, other uh, three papers. But we've fundamentally shown that when you do a genetic modification, that it's not, you know, the same. Uh, as Zach will talk about, the, uh, the GMO companies of the world argue, oh, we just are doing a little itsy, weeny, teeny, little bitty genetic modification here. Don't worry. The genetically modified plant is the same. And we've disproven that. Um, this went from the social policy side. This was not something that we just did and published. As you can see, this went viral all across the internet. You know, I think it must have tens of thousands of citations now. Um, U.S. papers, worldwide papers. In fact, uh, Neil Young also picked up on it. Um, and, but, you know, when you do something this provocative, you also have your critiques, as you've noticed with the email thing. Um, we had people attacking us. And I say Monsanto here and its agents because Monsanto, frankly, is behind these people. And it used other people to try to detract our research, saying it was a scam, a fraud, standard stuff people try to do. Um, but what's really interesting is this, this gentleman here, Kevin Folta, if you look him up, he's a professor, chairman of the horticultural department of the University of Florida. He attacked us, and he wrote out this interesting thing. Can everyone see this? I'm an independent scientist, not Monsanto. Okay? So, chairman of the horticultural department of University of Florida, one of the most quote-unquote eminent agricultural institutions. After this came out, well, a young uh, activist out on the West Coast, Gary Ruskin, did what's called the Freedom of Information Act. On, the University of Florida, by the way, is a public university, and 4,000 emails came out. And one of the emails implicated FOLTA, and this is one of the emails. Can everyone see this? The email basically is an email from Monsanto giving FOLTA $25,000 to be their spokesman. All right, this is a guy who claimed that he, he was an independent scientist, the one who was attacking us, who led into all these viral other articles. So what we did was, you know, I didn't want to sort of sit lying down, so um, I said, look, I'll give you my $10 million building in Cambridge to Monsanto if you can disprove the conclusions of our collective research, which said that there's no standards for safety of GMOs. And that's where we are today. So this is a controversial issue, but um, Monsanto uh, did respond in the newspaper. They said, you know, we think this is just a publicity stunt, but if you want to meet with us, we'll show up. So the executive director of our organization did write to Monsanto, inviting them, but I don't think they're here. So that's where we're at. Um, but let me uh, finish by saying this before I bring up Brian. You know, Livingston, by the way, I don't know if you guys know the history, is actually was born out of controversy. Everyone aware of the Horseneck Riots? Okay, in 1745, September 19, 1745, the British actually violated 
property rights arrangements that uh, the citizens of Livingston had made 30 years before the Revolutionary War. And it started for 10 years what was known as the Horseneck Riots, which really gave rise to Livingston. So Livingston was born out of controversy because people didn't want to live up to their agreements or people were actually lying about who owned what. So Livingston is actually born out of controversy. And so controversy is not a bad thing, you know, as we're taught to. It's actually a good thing because out of controversy, we actually can find what the truth is. So let me bring up Brian. And uh, Brian's going to kick this off by giving the uh, background on the, on the first paper, which, which is up here. Thank you, Dr. Ayaduri. So um, about 14 months ago, um, we were actually able to, to meet through a connection with the LEF and, and Heidi Sislow, uh, Dr. Ayaduri, um, when he came for the tour of the high school upon uh, the uh, LEF Hall of Fame induction. And so we were very fortunate to be able to sit down and brainstorm some ideas. Um, he was very interested in our science research program. And at the time he said, you know, let's try something. Let's see if we can get a group of students together and, and see what they're capable of doing. And so, you know, sometimes we just have to take a chance in life. And, and so we got some of our students together and saw if they were interested in this, and they were. Um, and so a partnership formed. And, and the result of that partnership um, was really the, this first paper that, that you see here. And so, you know, if you take a look at that, there are, there are four students who are um, co-authors, um, and, and I'm also one of the, the co-authors on this paper, and I'm very proud of that. So what happened was when um, we did meet, this, this partnership developed, and it really became something that happened very quickly. So uh, the three students that I'm going to introduce to you tonight um, have been working on this now for about the past 14 months. And they'll explain to you their research. They, they certainly can do a better job of that, that than I can. Um, but what, what I would like to talk about is just real quickly, um, the idea that Dr. Ayaduri, Dr. Dianakar really took an opportunity to, to step out and work with our students. And, and we're very proud of that. We're very proud of the work that they did. Um, we're also very thankful for the time that, that these two great scientists have put into our, our program, our school, and, and the futures of these three students. And so they were tasked with looking at a particular system um, and doing a, an extensive literature review of that system. And we met, uh, we met sometimes through um, uh, go-to meetings, sometimes through phone conferences, but we met once a week um, in my office. And the, uh, the results of that are what these students will present tonight. So I want to take a minute to introduce them to you. Uh, we have Zach Zamore and... Yeah, feel free to clap. Rachel Olovyanikov and Phoebe Konecki. And so I'd like to introduce Zach to start off the student portion of this presentation. Hi, everybody. I'm Zach. Um, and we are the students working with Dr. Dionikar and Dr. Ayuduri. And our research revolves around GMOs, genetically modified organisms. And we all learned about GMOs and why they're created and how they're created in our biology and chemistry classes here at the high school. However, once we started this topic and diving deeper and deeper into it, we realized that there was no research done about how genetic modification affects these organisms at the molecular level. 
And this is scary because GMOs make a huge part of our diet, yet there's really no research done about, about how safe they are. So first of all, GMO stands for genetically modified organism, and they're created when the genes of one organism are extracted, isolated, and cloned, and then inserted into the genome of some other unrelated organism to produce some desired effect. And it's important to note that this is um, done in the lab environment, and nothing like this occurs in nature. So this diagram shows how genetic modification occurs. And first, the DNA from one organism, like a bacteria cell, is extracted, isolated, and cloned, and then inserted into the genome of another organism, like this plant, where the cells are allowed to, uh, the, where the cells are cultured and allowed to divide, and then the plant is created where they can then breed all these plants that have this desired trait. So these are some commonly genetically modified foods. You could see corn, soy, canola, and potatoes, and many others. And all of these are modified for a variety of reasons, like improving shelf life, improving taste, or resisting drought. And there's even transgenic tomatoes that are being created that have anti-cancer properties. Right now, the topic of genetic modification is uh, very hotly debated in our society. On one side, you have the, the GMO creators, Monsanto and Syngenta, and even MIT, as Dr. Ayuduri said. And however, on the other side, you have these stores like Whole Food, Chipotle, and Trader Joe's that are either taking significant measures to either ban GMOs altogether or require labeling. So clearly, there's not a consensus on this issue. Also, right now, the FDA's guideline in um, regulating GMOs is called substantial equivalence. And it's when the producers of the GM crops, like Monsanto, go to the FDA with their crop and report that their, that their crop is substantially equivalent to the non-GMO counterpart. And they can compare it on three different um, things, like nutritional value, proteins, carbs, or fats, and toxins that are characteristic of the non-GMO counterpart. However, the FDA isn't doing any testing, especially um, other harmful toxins and substances that may be upregulated when the gene is introduced. So right now that there is really no standards in doing laboratory research on comparing the difference between these two types of crops, and also, there's all the FDA doesn't do any of this either because it's all self-reporting from the companies. So there's really no safety on it. So again, my name is Rachel, and to continue on, we um, looked at the question of what the difference between GM and non-GM and the non-GM counterpart. And in order to do this, we uh, looked at the C1 molecular system and looked at how GMOs affect this pathway. So the C1 pathway involves the transfer of one carbon units, and, these un and this pathway is vital to the metabolism of, different, of all plants, uh, fungi, and bacteria. Um, the most important part of the C1 pathway is removing and detoxifying formaldehyde. 
and that is a toxic intermediate which is produced during photosynthesis. So more about formaldehyde. Formaldehyde is a naturally occurring compound and it is naturally created in plants and broken down in plants. You might know it as a preservative because in the past it has been used as a preservative, but it has been found to be a type two carcinogen. What this means that, it, that if it is not broken down in plants, it, uh, has, it can cause cancer in humans and other very dangerous diseases, let alone cause uh, diseases in plants as well. So it is important to make sure that GMOs do not affect the formaldehyde detoxification process because if this is affected, there is a chance that we are uh, at risk for different diseases like cancer and irritable bowel syndrome because of the uh, danger of formaldehyde. So in order to conduct our research on this topic, we did a literature review and we began by looking at keywords that are uh, particularly important to our topic. So with our mentors, we came up with a list of keywords. Some of them are highlighted here, like GMO corn, Roundup corn, C1 metabolism corn. We went on uh, various different search engines that are also here, Google Scholar, PubMed, ProQuest, Science Direct, and we typed in these keywords and saw how many hits came up. We reported that number, and we also went through the titles and abstracts of all these papers to narrow the set down to just papers that we deemed relevant. So again, we started with finding articles in various search engines, and we sorted through these titles and abstracts to get down to a more relevant set, and then we narrowed it down even further so once we had the set that was narrowed down by our mentors of just relevant articles, we read and analyzed all of these papers, and we looked for molecules, enzymes, relationships between different pathways in order to find conclusions. And these conclusions were documented in a diagram, which Phoebe will talk about later. Um, these findings were used in the first published article. So just to visualize the process, we started with an initial set, which included thousands of articles. We went down to around 200 articles, and we went down to a study set, which we divided among ourselves and read and analyzed in order to find our data. So from our article, we had created an elaborate C1 pathway diagram, which included um, a few different pathways. First, you have um, you have formaldehyde detoxification, uh, you have methionine biosynthesis, and the methylation cycle. And these are all interconnected and all include formaldehyde and breaking it down. And, um, and this was all critical information that was used to make our results. So I will be discussing what we found in our article, such as the diagrams. This image represents C1 metabolism in its simplest form. As you can see, C1 metabolism takes place through the course of three different pathways. And although this diagram may look simple, it's extremely complex once you dive into what each of these pathways contain. The first pathway is formaldehyde detoxification. Formaldehyde, as Rachel explained, is highly toxic and it is important to both the plant and a human that would consume the plant that this compound is detoxified. Formaldehyde can be detoxified through two different means. The first one is tetrahydrofolate, seen on the bottom, 
and then the one above is glutathione. Glutathione is an important antioxidant to both plants and to humans. Glutathione is found in humans and decreases in amounts as people age. The relationship between formaldehyde and glutathione is a yin-yang relationship, which means that as glutathione levels are increased, formaldehyde levels are decreased. It's important that there are proper levels of glutathione because if not, formaldehyde will not properly be detoxified into the detoxified products such as formaldehyde or 510-methylene tetrahydrofolate. This pathway shows methionine biosynthesis. These are three molecules that were shown in the previous pathway, which shows the overlap between all of these pathways in the process of C1 metabolism. This pathway is extremely complex, and there are many molecules that go into this process of methionine biosynthesis. The purple molecules show the transfer of the carbon group. C1 metabolism is important because it is the transfer of one carbon group throughout the pathway into the necessary products. The other molecules are there to help to regulate the pathway. Because of the complexity of this pathway, it's impossible that one part of the pathway can be changed without altering the entire structure or the end result of it. This animation will show the transfer of the carbon group from homocysteine to methionine. As you can see, the group is transferred over to methionine, which is the essential purpose of C1 metabolism. The last pathway I will be discussing is the methylation cycle. Once again, there is an overlap from the previous pathway into this one in which you see homocysteine and methionine. There are also many complex molecules that go into this pathway, which further shows the complexity. The entire process of C1 metabolism is like an engine in which there is one functioning whole, but also many pieces to the part that, need, that require function of it. In summary, C1 metabolism is a system of systems. Although there is an end result in order to transfer one carbon unit, there are many different reactions that occur within each of the individual three pathways that result in the end product of C1 metabolism. This system is also extremely complex, which means that not just one part of the pathway can be affected without affecting the whole thing or certain parts of it. This works as a finely tuned engine where there is one end functioning whole, but the many pieces within the engine need to be properly functioning in order to produce the end result. And nature has spent billions of years creating this, so humans should take great caution when attempting to modify this pathway, as there could be extremely detrimental results. Thank you. Thank you guys, great work. So uh, the work that was done at LHS had uh, put us in a very comfortable situation where we can take that further to develop mathematical models and understand how the C1 metabolism pathway works under normal conditions as well as under stress conditions which uh, was the basis of the next two papers that I'm gonna discuss. So here comes the educational part. 
So there are three subsystems that the student had identified, uh, methionine biosynthesis, methylation cycle, and formaldehyde detoxification that are involved in uh, the detoxification of formaldehyde so it doesn't accumulate in the plants, as well as it also gives us a home, uh, equilibrium of uh, uh, glutathione, which is a, a very important uh, antioxidant molecule, and as Phoebe pointed out, it decreases over age. So after uh, the information that we got from the students, we went back to the literature to find the biochemical uh, details of these interactions. So for each of these subsystems actually has a um, minimum of 20 to 25 reactions, and all those reactions have uh, rate constants and all, all the kinetic information that is required to develop uh, the mathematical model. So we went through the literature to find that information and we uh, put together the math computational models of uh, these subsystems and then we integrated these subsystems using the cytosol platform that um, Dr. Ayadurai went through which combines all these uh, individual models to create a holistic view of a system. Um, so we had the uh, individual model for methionine biosynthesis uh, formaldehyde detoxification and the methylation cycle, which we combined using cytosol to get an overview of the C1 metabolism, and we created an integrated model for C1 metabolism. And we asked uh, the integrated model some questions, uh, which we call simulations. So, what if questions? What happens to GSH? What happens to formaldehyde? Now, this model was created for a normal plant, so we wanted to look at uh, how uh, glutathione behaves under normal conditions and how formaldehyde uh, behaves under normal conditions. So what we found was that uh, we simulated the model for about eight days, so the uh, time scale that is on the uh, x-axis. So we are basically simulating what happens in the C1 metabolism over a period of eight days. And we measured the level of glutathione in the cell. And as you can see, the glutathione level did not change, and this is for the normal plant, over the period of eight days. Uh, the next molecule that we uh, did simulations on was formaldehyde, and we, what we observed was that formaldehyde, although it is present, but it gets detoxified nicely over the period of eight days. So there is no accumulation of formaldehyde. Now this sets us up for uh, the next paper, uh, uh, before I go to that, I wanted to um, draw your attention here. So what, what we did here was that to see whether our mathematical model is robust enough, that we're not just seeing a part of picture and we're seeing the whole picture, we changed certain parameters. Uh, this is in a scientific term called a sensitivity analysis that uh, kind of gives the model its uh, validity. So we changed different parameters. So these are all different conditions. So in, uh, under all these conditions, what we saw was the same consistent behavior from formaldehyde concentrations. And it, it, although there was some, but it decreased over the period of time. So that was the findings from our uh, second paper, uh, the mod mathematical modeling of C1 metabolism under normal conditions. But uh, nature is a very dynamic process. And uh, uh, a single system is not a standalone system. It interacts with different systems. So in a plant, 
So this is a, a snapshot of uh, several systems that interact with C1 metabolism. So if you make a change in any of these subsystems, it will affect the other related subsystems. We wanted to uh, see what, uh, what will be the effect of the oxidative stress subsystem, which, which comes into picture when the plant is under stress. And it is also uh, very common in uh, all the living beings. And any um, malfunction in this oxidative stress, uh, in humans at least, uh, leads to several diseases, including cancer and cardiovascular disorders. So we were interested in finding out how in plants the oxidative stress affects the C1 metabolism and its uh, individual subsystems. So to do that, we went back to the literature. So this is the uh, third paper. Uh, and we looked for more information on uh, the oxidative stress subsystem in the plants, as well as the uh, mechanisms that are involved in the oxidative stress system. So our initial set, though much lower than what the students had come up with, uh, consisted of about 279 papers, of which we had 107 relevant uh, articles. and. About 20 of them were highly relevant, of which we found three subsystems that comprise of oxidative stress system. And these are the three subsystems that are involved in creating the oxidative stress. The first one is that reactive oxygen species synthesis. So reactive oxygen species are the biomarkers of oxidative stress. If you have more of them, then it's an indication that there is something uh, wrong happening. And the reactive oxygen species also affect one of the key molecular pathways, uh, such as ascorbate glutathione pathway, as well as lipid peroxidation pathway. And the, both these pathways are downstream, or that means they come after the re formation of react uh, reactive oxygen species, but they affect how the plant functions. So ascorbate and glutathione, for example, they, are the, they form the antioxidant system. So the plant ex uh, experiences oxidative stress on a day-to-day -day basis. But that oxidative stress is uh, mitigated by the ascorbate glutathione system, which is an antioxidant system. So if something goes wrong in this system, then you will have more oxidative stress. The lipid peroxidation pathway is also a critical um, pathway system, which is affected by the reactant oxygen species. So again, we employed the same uh, methodology where we uh, found the uh, by molecular reactions in each of these subsystems. We developed individual models for each of those subsystems, and then we uh, integrated them using cytosol to create a model for the oxidative stress system. And then we integrated the oxidative stress system with C1 metabolism that uh, uh, we had modeled before to understand the interactions between the, these two major molecular systems. Uh, the questions that we were asking this model the simulations that we performed were again for um, how it is affecting the glutathione levels, glutathione levels as well as the formaldehyde levels. So as you can see here, the green line are the simulations for the C1 metabolism when there is no oxidative stress. And the red line is, are the simulations when there is oxidative stress. So in presence of oxidative stress, glutathione levels drop and almost by the end of uh, uh, 1.8 days, there was a complete depletion of glutathione in the C1 metabolism. So what happens to formaldehyde over the same period of time? As glutathione went down, 
formaldehyde started increasing and it kept on increasing until we uh, until the period that which we use for simulation so the key important findings of this paper are that oxidative stress can deplete glutathione which is part of the antioxidant system and because there is less glutathione more formaldehyde is getting up accumulated that means less formaldehyde is getting detoxified so the connection between these two systems the oxidative stress system and the c1 metabolism is the glutathione so if you have more oxidative stress there is less glutathione and more formaldehyde so th these are these were the key findings from the third paper and uh, before i invite uh, dr ayadurai to present the findings for the fourth paper i would like to say a few words about the students and uh, our uh, interactions over the past 14 months so this uh, the work with the c1 metabolism was the one uh, that resulted in this paper and uh, that was done last year but from the beginning of this year we have continued this partnership and uh, i was so impressed with uh, the work that they have done uh, last year that i um, i thought i thought comfortable that they would be able to handle a complete system by themselves so i had given them three systems to work on and they have been putting some really good work uh, on those three systems and these are all plant related systems and they are uh, uh, i th i hopefully will have some really uh, nice publications out of that too all right so that's my bit i'll uh, uh, invite Dr. Ayadurai to finish the uh, presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Prabhakar. So, Prabhakar, by the way, is a pleasure to work with, you know, and I think the students have enjoyed working with him too, so thanks for all, all his work. So, one of the things is when Prabhakar talked about glutathione and oxidative stress, I didn't want to lose anyone relative to that, but simply put, Oxidative stress, for example, occurs with plants when they undergo drought, right? Yeah. So you undergo oxidative stress if someone's stressing you out at home, for example, okay? Or if you have temperature changes or if you get sick, right? So oxidative stress is a big word, really talking about stress in many... So plants undergo this um, when they have a drought, for example. But the other thing is Prabhakar, I think these two slides are, even under different conditions, Prabhakar... Uh, work showed that, or Dr. Dionelker's work showed that glutathione drops and formaldehyde accumulates, okay? So the takeaway, as Prabhakar said, was under oxidative stress, formaldehyde accumulates and glutathione drops. Now you have to remember, in normal plants, formaldehyde is produced, but it's detoxified. So there's always a background level, right? If you pick a plant, some level of formaldehyde. The key point here is that it accumulates under oxidative stress. So let's, so, so those were three papers we published and we got out. When we got to th this fourth paper, we asked a very important question. The question was, does genetic modification, as um, Zach talked about, which is the genetic engineering of the plant in the test tube, not what occurs in nature, does that disrupt the plant's molecular systems, right? That's the question because the claim is, don't worry, the two claims that the waste safety is determined right now is companies like Monsanto say, first of all, don't worry, the genetically modified, for example, soybean is no different than the non-genetically modified. That's one pillar of quote-unquote safety. And the other is when you eat it, don't worry, it's not going to harm you, okay? 
So we're really talking about the first pillar is what we're exploring in this research, the issue of is it different? Now, how do you find out if it's different? Well, you can do your self-reporting experiments or you can go down to the molecular sciences we're doing. So what we did here was that was a question and that was published in paper four. By the way, this paper I think has had almost 30,000, 40,000 downloads. This journal typically has maybe on average about 500 downloads of a paper. So you can see that this paper, even in the scientific communities, had massive number of downloads. In fact, even the paper that the students publish has had significant number of downloads. So what we did was, the question was, is the non-GMO different than the GMO? And what we did was we decided to choose soy. Um, the reason is in the United States it's the number one most GMO crop, right? 94% uh, of the soy that you eat, or hopefully you don't eat, or if you want to eat, it's fine, is genetically modified. All right? I think 90% corn and I think about 80% of the cotton. So we decided to take the big one on. And again, this time, what we did was we went back to the literature. By the way, when we talk about models, some of our critics try to say, oh, this is just a computer model, don't worry. But it's not just a model. We're literally looking at actual experiments that were done in laboratory experiments. In fact, when you look at the total number of experiments we've looked at in all the papers, we're looking at 6,497 experiments that were done across 184 institutions in 23 countries. So this is not just one laboratory's experiments. We're looking at all of these experiments following the scientific method. We're looking at their measurements, the molecular mechanisms they came, and we're integrating them. So when we ask this question, you see, the first three papers weren't about GMOs. They were just the science of what's going on. So, we, so these papers are papers where other scientists are, had actually done genetic modification of soy, and they were noticing that there were certain chemicals that were different. And what we found in particular was there were four enzymes, catalase, uh, SOD superoxide, dismutase, glutathione, reductase, and ascorbate peroxidase, plus H2O2, hydrogen peroxide. They found that these five chemicals from actual wet lab experiments in genetically modified soy were different. So remember, the good news was that we had done the oxidative stress pathway, so we looked at how these chemicals affected this. And this is what's fascinating. As uh, Dr. Dianoker said, in the ascorbate glutathione pathway, which is one of those pathways in oxidative stress, you can see these two chemicals, which are changed, affect this pathway. Everyone following me? Just, just to be clear, these are the three major pathways of oxidative stress. We found four chemicals were different, right, in genetic modification, and so we plugged those in. So two of them affect this pathway, and three of them affect the reactive oxygen species pathways. So we literally took the actual information in wet lab experiments, and we integrated it. Okay, we amalgamated it. And then we put it all together again. Um, so the genetic modification, how that affects this, the oxidative stress, and how that affects C1 metabolism. All right? So we put all this together. Again, we use Cytosolve to connect all this, and this is what we see. What we see is that under all different conditions, formaldehyde accumulates. So no matter what you do, again, this is what, as, as Dr. Dianoker said, a sensitivity analysis, even under all different conditions, the key thing is formaldehyde accumulates, and guess what? Um, this is different 
in the GMO case than the non-GMO case. If you recall, in the second paper, in the non-GMO case, formaldehyde is produced, but then it's detoxified. Everyone see that? Non-GMO, GMO. So there's a difference. And the difference is if you were to measure formaldehyde, this research is showing that there would be a significant difference. Formaldehyde accumulates, and why does it do that? Well, what we find is that with the genetic modification, glutathione levels drop. And unlike the non-GMO case where glutathione is maintained. Isn't it fascinating? It's almost as though in genetic modification, the plant behaves like what? Oxidative stress. It's almost as though the plant, quote-unquote, feels like it's being choked. So because of that, it starts depleting its glutathione to protect itself, and formaldehyde accumulates. Okay? So from our research, these, the non-GMO and the GMO soy are radically different. Formaldehyde and glutathione are criteria. As Zach pointed out, remember today, when they check for safety, if Prabhakar and I decided to create our own GMO blueberry, we simply can decide what we want to test. We're going to test the fat content, carbohydrate, and we simply tell the FDA, and the FDA simply tells us, dear Dr. Dienerker and Dr. Iadre, thank you very much for doing your testing that you did in your lab to show us that they're not different, and we're putting the onus on you. That's called safety testing today, okay? That would be akin to you and I taking our cars and doing emission testing in our garage and letting the DMV know that we did some type of testing, and therefore the car can be put out on the road. But this is what safety testing is, believe it or not. So, by the way, this research got supported now by um, nearly 50 MDs and scientists all over the world. And one of the critical things is, remember, we're not talking about being pro or anti-GMO. The issue that there is a material difference. And that material difference is if, if formaldehyde and glutathione were being used, we would argue that those plants are not the same and they would have never been even allowed to be safe under the simple ways that safety is allowed in the United States. All right, so that's where we're going to end. So that's the foundations of what we've discovered, that um, these, these two things are different. Now, when we ended our fourth paper, we said, look, we'd like to measure these, right? And we'd like to actually, quote-unquote, field test them. The problem is you can't even field test them because it's so hard to get the actual seeds because of the way Monsanto's agreements are contractually. However, we were lucky. Um, when, when our research came out, and people said, oh, this is just a model. You know, it can't be true, or it ha you know, it's not been validated. Um, Dr. Dionoker's research team, a few weeks ago, we found this very interesting paper in plant physiology, and it's an actual in vitro study done on plants. And what's interesting is they did it on Roundup Ready Soy. By the way, Roundup, everyone know what Roundup is? It's the herbicide Monsanto creates, and the Roundup Ready Soy is a genetically modified soy that protects the herbicide. So they found out that the GMO soy is different. And in fact, they found out this very interesting result. I don't know if I can take this off. Um, but what, you found, what they found is that the glutathione levels are a factor of three times different. So these are wet lab experiments validating our in silico on the computer experiment. So this, is, this paper we're going to be putting out. The point is... At the, at the end of the day, what we're saying is that we didn't just look at one experiment. We went through 6,000 experiments, integrated them 
on the core foundation of C1, and we're noticing a difference. And this paper, at least on the glutathione side, is validating the predictions that we made. So anyway, I'm going to end on that and let Brian, uh, Mr. Carey is going to come up and he's going to go through questions, because we want to obviously make it participatory. And there are two mics on each side, so please come on up. And the students are going to come up too, so they're going to be available up here to answer questions. Prabhakar, you're not going to sit over here. There's a hand held down. Uh, I, I can get that one. Sure. Yeah. So I, I have a, a very easy job. I, I'm just uh, opening up to the, uh, the last 20 minutes or so to questions. So if you do have a question, please feel free to come up to either one of the mics on each side of the, the auditorium. And you, know, you can direct your questions to our research scientists or our students, whoever you'd like to deal with. Hi, I'm Dan Gordon. So I just want to point out regarding the FDA, I'm, I, I work in pharma, and I, I'm sure you may realize that FDA doesn't actually do any work. They just review, so that's their function. It's up to the company to carry out the experiments, the studies, and then submit their data for review. So um, they don't actually do clinical studies or anything of that nature. So that's not their mission. That's on the responsibility of the companies. And so that's, that's one point. The second point is um, your simulations. So um, I, I, I understand the fact that you did a lot of them. And so, um, but all simulations are based on a model. And then a model is based on a lot of assumptions that you put in and plug into the model. And so I was wondering when you published your paper, what kind of assumptions did you make up front? Because obviously, whatever is plugged in can influence the uh, results coming out. Hello? So that's a very good question. So, so I'll just repeat the question. I think the, the first point is um, that all models are a function of the assumptions, OK? And uh, what were the assumptions here? So, so let, me, let me take it in two parts. First of all, uh, Science is all based on modeling, right? So we should get that clear because sometimes people try to say, oh, these are just models. Let's go back to what we learn in, I think, chemistry class here, right? You have the process of the scientific method where you start with a hypothesis. I think the Earth is round, right? I think force affects acceleration. This is a hypothesis. You do an experiment, and from that experiment, you gather data. You take that data and then you mine that data, which means, it, let's say you get two pieces of data, force and acceleration, you plot it on a graph. That graph is a model. Agreed? That graph is a model, and that may show a correlation between force and acceleration, and then you may hypothesize that force equals mass times acceleration, which is Newton's law. But then you go do another experiment. And then you get more data, and this is a cycle of the scientific method. You do experiments, you gather data, and, and a model is always built in every scientific experiment. So that, I just want to give that groundwork. So what we did here was we looked at 6,497 wet lab experiments. That's what 
systems biology lets you do. It's very different than the reductionist biology where one guy does one experiment and publishes one paper. So we went through 6,497 experiments. So that's where the data is coming from. That data reveals not correlations, but actual molecular pathways as the students just shared. Those molecular pathways are invariant in plants, for example, in the C1 metabolism pathway. And what we're doing is we're connecting those pathways together. The connection between those pathways and how fast the reactions occur are also coming from wet lab experiments. So everything we've done in this, from a due diligence standpoint, everyone can trace to a paper that's been scientifically written out there. The disclaimer is that we're looking at experiments that were done across an aggregate of labs and their measurements. But that's true in any scientific experiment. So if, you re, uh, if, you, if people want, we can send the links to the papers. They're up there. But in the papers, we've given all the assumptions and every detail of every little rate constant and where that comes from. Now, when you integrate those together, is that's the solution that we've gotten. But it's an integration of multiple laboratory experiments, which evokes the need, again, in the scientific process to do more experiments. The reason I showed you that last example is that's actually an in vitro experiment validating the glutathione levels actually dropping in the soy done in the wet lab, done independently of our predictions. So yes, all mathematical models have assumptions. We've stated them clearly in gross detail. In fact, none of the people who've said anything about our papers have in fact attacked our models. They haven't even attacked the rate constants. If anything, they've attacked uh, things that have nothing to do with the papers, in fact. Hi, I wanted to congratulate the students and thank you for your work with, your work with them. I think it's really a great project together. My question is, let's imagine that this modeling revealed that the glutathione levels were, were down and that the formaldehyde levels were up. How would you explain to a senior policymaker whether or not the increase in formaldehyde was significant enough to really have a biological impact on people or animals that ate the genetically modified plant products? So the question is, how do we explain to a senior policymaker, right? So we even actually wanted to make it easier then. See, formal, for our position here, formaldehyde and glutathione, what we're saying is those are two criteria that should be included. That's what our, but the more important thing that we're saying to a policymaker is, as of today, there are no standards for differentiating a non-GMO and a GMO. Let me explain what I mean by standards, and that's with a capital S. If you go to a website called ANSI, A-N-S-I.org, American National Standards Institute, on that website is listed all different documents of standards for nearly everything. The smoke alarm in this room could not be installed in this room unless it's past a standard. Okay? The, your car can't go out unless it followed a set of standards. Today, when someone says, show me the difference between this GMO soybean and this non-GMO soybean, well, Prabhakar and I can do an experiment in our laboratory at home. The AP chemistry students can do their thing and Monsanto can do one. And each one of us can follow our own quote-unquote lowercase s standard. There's no standard to do that. So the real issue to a policymaker is why does this aspect of human life, which is probably more important than a smoke detector, which affects food, why are there no standards? 
And we believe the reason is that when you don't have any standards, it's a wild west. So that's why we need standards. So the real issue is, yes, we're noticing formaldehyde and glutathione through a very deep scientific analysis should be potentially used as criteria. The criteria that they're using is sort of in our position just ad hoc. In fact, when the GMO salmon was put out, if you read carefully what it said, it said the GMO salmon was quote-unquote allowed because it was nutritionally equivalent. So someone compared a certain set of criteria. Well, did they compare other variables which may have been very, very different? So the real issue to policymakers is why are there no standards for genetically modified food noting the, the material difference of them? That's really the question all of us in this room should be asking all of our policymakers. Hi, good evening. I'd like to uh, first of all congratulate the students. You all did a great job with your presentation today. My name is Dr. Felicia Stoller, um, and I'm also a journalist. And uh, part of why I'm here tonight is I wanted to hear what was going on here and um, really just try to understand um, some of what you were talking about. You know, you, and I know this other gentleman before was talking about um, the regulations with the FDA, but the truth is it's that the USDA, the FDA, and the EPA, there are three agencies in the U.S. that deal with safety standards for GM, correct? Well, first of all, first of all the FDA, to be clear, takes no position, if you really read it, on GM, GM safety. The, at the international level, there was a... Um, there was a quote I put up there. It said, Monsanto said, we do rigorous, quote unquote, rigorous standards of safety assessment. Yeah, I think they actually do 10 to 13 years of research. They, 10 to 13 years worth of research before they submit this documentation to the FDA and the other government agencies. So um, I guess my challenge is sort of taking information and using it out of context. The journals that you're citing are not peer-reviewed journals. And in fact, you've never invited Monsanto. You, they weren't invited here, and you've never actually spoken with them. And you use the media and opportunities like this as a way of perpetuating misinformation. And your model for using data is no different than if I were to say to everybody in here, let me just use some standards and norms and predict all of your cholesterol without testing it. I mean, at the end of the day, you're using predictive norms, you're using information, you've never done any of the actual measurements. And the beautiful thing about the world we live in now is that there are equipment and assays available to do these kinds of tests. And it frightens right, let, me let, that you stand here, very, you're, you're not you that different than Dr. Oz getting grilled by the Congress for, you know, being irresponsible with some of the information. I mean, you take stuff and you take it complete, completely well, for, out of context. First of all, do you have a question? Yeah, I have a question. When are you going to really actually talk to Monsanto and invite them to participate in something like this? Monsanto was sent an email. We can bring you up the email. So first sure. of all, let me, go, let me go through your inaccuracies. Sure, go ahead. Because what you're doing is you're essentially repeating the propaganda that a multi-million dollar company has been no, putting... No, wait, I no, don't, let me finish. No, it's you nothing, just had that, a it's nothing let me that Google can't find. I mean, you know, that's what I wait, deal wait, with is misinformation wait, wait. in the media. You just had a chance to speak. That's fine. You said we didn't send an invitation. First of all, in June, let me tell you the lies which you're propagating. First okay, of all, why don't you June, ask the principal wait, of the high school finish. here if they you were just, invited? You just accused us of lying. So you need you to did. know what you said is that you've lied. 
On June 23rd, yes. there's an email that, was, that we gave an interview to NPR mm -hmm. in Chicago. And mm -hmm. listen very carefully so you get your facts right if sure. you're a journalist. Yeah, I am. And write them down. Oh, I'm recording it. Write it's them fine. down. So in June, yeah. they were given an interview by me, mm -hmm. and their head of their PR wrote back to... And what's their name? Uh, Dixon. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll, I'll bring up the email, in fact. Do you okay. want to see the email with the invitation? Sure, go ahead. Okay, and you're going to write this up, right? Yeah. Okay, good. Because it's about time journalists got this right, especially in mainstream media. Okay. Yeah, okay is right. It is right. Right. You know, and, and correlation doesn't mean causation, so what's ah, the harm is, here? Is, yeah, that's right. Yeah, where's your harm? Well, let me bring this up. There's two pillars, first of all, so let's take it easy mm -hmm. and understand so you get educated properly. First oh, it's of all, okay. I've got a doctorate, too, so it's all good. Well, it doesn't matter if you have a doctorate. Okay. The students don't have a doctorate, and they understand this. I know, but okay? yours isn't in actual sciences. Yours well, is let's, talk about science. the, let's talk about the letter that was sent to them. You just said we didn't invite them, right? Right. Isn't that what you just said? Yeah. Okay, so after I show you this email, you're going to retract that? Am I going to retract that? Right, you just said we did not invite I'm going to actually fact check it, because I'm not going to just right. go by your word. I'm going to actually have to fact check exactly. it, because that's what so a journalist has to do. So you, you do know that Kevin Folta uh, was paid money by Monsanto, right? That's what you reported. That's the New York Times reported that. Okay. And you can go look at the emails. Okay. And he's a guy who attacked us that went viral. Okay. It all came from him, who's been absolutely discredited. Okay. The chairman of the horticultural department. So you should also write that up. Okay. Okay, so let's look at the email, which you said we never sent. Okay? Mm -hmm. There it is right there. Dear Miss Dixon, okay, she's a head of PR at Monsanto. Mm -hmm. And you can call her up. Okay, great. Go do that. Number uh, one, so that's the first lie I want mm -hmm. to take off the table. We have mm -hmm. invited them. Mm -hmm. In fact, they contacted Mark Stern a couple mm -hmm. of days ago. Mm -hmm. So they do know about this. Yeah, but it so wasn't you, because you invited them. It's because they actually pay a PR firm to do a me? search. Right. What's that? Anybody can do wait, keyword wait, 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 searches. Wait, 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 wait. First point is we invited them. Do you see there's an email there? Uh, yeah, but... Okay. Uh -huh. And in fact, two major publications have spoken to them, and they mm -hmm. know about this. Mm -hmm. All right? So Did that's you the invite them, though? This is the executive director of our organization. But that's not you. That's the executive director of the mm -hmm. Center for Integrative Systems. Okay. Okay? Mm -hmm. So if you want to play those games, then you don't want to understand truth. Oh, I do understand truth. Well, we, they've been invited, period. Okay. Okay. Okay, so let's end it right there on that question. Okay. Second thing is you need to understand science, which I you do. don't really understand because in all of science, you do measurements, you extract data, mm -hmm. and then you do a model. F equals MA is a model, whether you know that or not. Mm -hmm. It's been done enough through multiple experiments, we call it a law. All right? Mm -hmm. I also showed you another experiment that was done in vitro measuring that glutathione levels are three times different in soy. Did you see that? Yes, I did. Okay, so that's an actual there's probably only a handful of people that actually understood most of the slides you put up Excuse here me? I'm sure there's only a handful of people that actually understood Why do you underestimate people's intelligence? You're the only I'm smart not, one? I'm not underestimating anything. How many people understood this research? Yeah, okay. Okay, there. It's nearly okay. 90%. So okay, there goes your great. second assumption, which is false. Okay. Okay, let's go to the third one, mm -hmm. all right? The third issue, most important issue here is we're doing systems biology. Do you know what right. systems biology is? Yes, it is. It's do. not a reduction experiment done by one lab. We're aggregating experiments, mm -hmm. experimental knowledge at the molecular level. Mm 
Right. And that experiment is revealing there's a significant difference. In fact, in our fourth paper, we said we should do experiments. Mm -hmm. But you can't do those experiments because there are no standards. We are now organizing an international standards committee, and you're welcome to be part of it, mm -hmm. to actually set standards up because there are no standards. When I took AP chemistry here, everything I learned from Gerald Walker, I don't know if he's here, was every experiment you do has a standard. It's unbelievable that there are no standards, and you're sitting here defending that. I'm not defending that there's no standards. You're, you're trying no, to I'm defend that you're everything you've said you're here. Mis, you're, you're, everything you've said here is okay. a rubbish okay. that all those mainstream media promoted. Okay, and what it's we've not shown. It's mainstream media. I mean, anybody you just, can. You just said that we have not run experiments. I, I just showed you an experiment. I said that you didn't do actual assays yourself. Did you actually extract? Did you Wait go? Did you Wait go into the research? That's not. Excuse me. We're doing a systems analysis. Okay. And John Fagan is, had been attempting to collect even soybeans. And do you know how difficult it is? Do you know what the no, contracts Monsanto soybean, has? Soybeans are pervasive. Anybody can no, get no, them. No, 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 no. That's the problem. So you don't understand what I'm saying. Oh, I do. You collect soybeans. He collects soybeans. I collect soybeans. Mm -hmm. You know what they'll do? They'll say, your experiment was done in certain conditions. His experiment was done in different conditions. No one will buy your facts, even if you prove it, it matches my results or his results. You have to have standards. We but don't have standards. But isn't the scientific method also about repeated measures and getting where the same results? Where are the results? standards? Can you find me the document where there's standards? Go find that. Standards and for what? For the scientific method? No, standards for... Okay, let me be very clear so you get it, okay? Because yeah. I think everyone else gets it, but you don't. Oh, okay. If you take a GMO soybean mm -hmm. right now, mm -hmm a seed, and I have a non-GMO soybean, right. and I want to do the measures of formaldehyde and glutathione between those two. Mm -hmm. Where is the protocols and the standards? What soil condition should you use? Where should they be planted? So if you did it, I did it, he did it, anyone in this room did it, we got the same results. Where are the standards? Is there any standards in agriculture period? There, there are standards. Not for There's standards for every everywhere. chemical experiment you do. I'm asking you, where are those standards? They don't exist. That's the point of our entire research. There are no standards. And if you want to be a good citizen, you would demand those standards. Okay. Uh, hello, thank, thank you for coming, doctor. I think we're due for a softball question after that one. Um, so back to the formaldehyde and, you know, the research that you've done is very compelling and as a new time comer to this information, um, I, I am concerned from a human standpoint of the, the toxic levels of formaldehyde that, that can build up in the system and the carcinogenic effects of that. Um, are you aware of any studies um, that are going along with GMOs to try to identify larger concentrations of formaldehyde within the human body? And if not, um, perhaps any institutes or research centers that would be more, more geared to do that, that kind of um, study. These papers have come out. We have uh, approached some of the experimental scientists uh, to collect some, data, uh, some of the seeds. Uh, he said that he wasn't able to do it here, but he will be doing a uh, collection in uh, South American countries, and he is actually uh, collecting non-GMO as well as GMO and organic, and we will have some data on uh, uh, these uh, these uh, biomolecules that we have just discussed. Okay. So, yeah. But as far as our knowledge is concerned, nobody has reported in the published literature uh, about the formaldehyde concentrations in any, uh, forget about GMO, but non-GMO or GMO. Uh, there, there are some 
anecdotal studies, but I, I don't want to, uh, at this platform, I don't want to bring them up. I think there are uh, several available online that you can find, but again, unless it is not peer-reviewed, there's no point in uh, bringing those up. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I, I think it's, a, you know, about three years ago, a, another French researcher called Seralini did a longitudinal study with rats. And a number of them, more than 50%, you know, developed cancer, tumors. Now, Seralini's study was published in a journal of chemical toxicology, I believe. And a few months after, accepted, peer-reviewed journal, a few months after the paper was accepted, uh, forget the exact time frame, a former head of research at Monsanto joined the editorial board. And that paper was forced to be retracted. Seralini's career was destroyed, completely destroyed, by the same kind of arguments you heard before. Sure. What's fascinating is just two months ago, Seralini won a defamation libel case in a French court system against this. So the point that Dr. Dinocker said is fascinating that you can't even, in the literature, find the, that people have not tested the difference between formaldehyde in a non-GMO and GMO. And the fact that we have to struggle so hard to get the seeds, there are no standards. That's really the point of this research. Why is it for something so important to our food supply that there are no standards? Why is it so difficult? If, in, in the pharmaceutical case, you can go to clinicaltrials.gov. Every pharmaceutical product, you can find online what clinical trials they did, the studies they did, et cetera. But you can't find that in the case of you know, genetically engineered foods. And that's what's disconcerting, just from a science standpoint, forget pro or anti-GMO. Thank you. Yeah. Did you want to say something, Zach? On, on the formaldehyde? OK. Good evening. My name is Dalila Rosenstruck. I'm a proud Livingston resident. Thank you so much for everybody doing this. I'm extremely proud of, of living in this town. And um, I have a chemical engineering degree from University of Florida. And um, I took a lot of courses that dealt with models. So I know exactly what you were talking about. And, and the amount of work that you've done is just amaz amazing. And in, I'm just uh, in awe of your work. So actually, my question is to this lady here. Um, I would like to know what kind of a doctor are you? In clinical nutrition. Clinical nutrition, okay. And I have a master's, uh, double master's from Columbia University. Okay, so. a clinical nutrition. And what journal do you work? I don't work at a journal right now. You said I'm you belong a, to a journal. I'm a journalist. Oh, with, with which, which newspaper I or publication? With various publications. I'm a health expert. I'm actually pulled in to do a lot of journalism work, and I do freelance work. Freelance, and okay. And I teach at Rutgers University, too. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you very much. I just wanted to know um, where this lady came from because I really was not intending on saying anything today and just listening to your work, but my heart was beating so, I, I mean, I can relate to what you go through and, and um, I just give you kudos for putting up with this kind of stuff. Thank you. Well, you know, I, I think it would be good if you disclose which journal you were with, because, you know, one of the journals we brought up is called Genetic Literacy Project. I don't work for a journal. I'm a journalist. No, no, I was just curious which journalist you said you've written for, because that's, 
One of the papers organizations brought up is an organization called Genetic Literacy Project. It's essentially a front organization. What's unfortunate that's taking place in science is that, you know, NIH, as you know, has cut massive amounts of public funding. So because, and this goes back to the fact that we live in an interesting time where NIH funding has been cut so desperately that the average, you know, associate professor in a university has to vie for so much funding right now. So the, the, the truth of science can actually be manipulated by money, unfortunately, because of the, you know, cut in public funding. So when you really trace this, we as citizens really should demand more public funding for science because that's where it starts. And that's why I think Livingston does so well because this is a very well-funded school and we're able to have this. So this needs to occur at, at a national level if we're really going to change the dialogue on this. Hi, I'm a teacher here at Livingston High School and I really appreciate this discussion. This has been a, a tremendous education for these young individuals. Not only uh, the work that they did, but also having this kind of discussion, which sometimes we don't have the opportunity in education to see that there are sides to a story and that you really have to, at some point, make a decision as to which side you might lay on and uh, you have to have facts to do that. And it seems to me that uh, that's what students are learning how to do. They're learning how to collect their facts. They're learning how to make their decisions. And whatever side they happen to be on is based on those decisions. I'm not saying one side's right and one side's wrong. I'm just saying we've got to investigate all these sides. So I really appreciate that you are doing this with these students. I am going to go home, though, and water my house plants because I don't want them to be under stress. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a question about the C1 metabolism, though. If you can educate me uh, about this. Uh, we're talking about plants like soybeans. We're talking about seed products that are being sold. I'm just curious how uh, the C1 um, pathway works in a seed as opposed to the plant itself where you're, you've got uh, leaves that are undergoing photosynthesis and there's obviously metabolic pathways that are taking place there. Do these same pathways take place in the seeds themselves such that those formaldehyde levels would be anticipated to be as high in the seeds as they would in the foliage of the plant? Uh, so I think the question is that whether these pathways occur in the seeds? Zach, you want to take it? Yeah, great. Um, so the question was about the differences in the C1 metabolism in seeds versus in like a, an adult plant. So first of all, formaldehyde is an intermediate of photosynthesis. So the fact that the seed isn't undergoing photosynthesis would mean that the C1 metabolism is at a smaller scale in the seed versus an adult plant. Oh, please. No, please, go ahead. Uh, since you brought up drought, uh, we are uh, continuing our project uh, beyond C1 metabolism uh, in, uh, and comparing the GM and non-GM. One of the prevailing uh, theories is, uh, about why we need GM plants is that they will um, be more productive in terms of less water consumption uh, they can resist drought more effectively. But there have been some contradictory evidence to that. Uh, in a sense, the GM plants actually, instead of 
consuming less water, they actually consume more water. And there's a term for that uh, water uptake efficiency. So they have a, a lower water uptake efficiency than the normal plants. And we, we have started looking into it and uh, the more information that it's still, it's, uh, we haven't published anything yet, but we'll soon publish it. What we're finding out is that um, GMO, it, it goes beyond just modifying the genetics of it. It also has to do with spraying the glyphosate on the plant. Now, once you spray glyphosate on the plant, it also lands on the soil. And as not many people are aware, but there's a, a symbiotic relationship between a plant and the soil around the plant, and that harbors all these bacteria. And as, as the students brought up, C1 metabolism, metabolism is not only present in plants, but also in bacteria, fungi, and other, anim, uh, other uh, organisms. So glyphosate works as a herbicide by blocking a certain pathway. It's called shikimic acid pathway, and that is present in all of these organisms. So what, what we found was that when you have glyphosate spread on the plants and it, it leaches into the ground, it blocks the shikimic acid pathway, which is critical for uh, producing a uh, uh, aromatic amino acid that is responsible for the immune system of that organism. So what I'm trying to say is that if you spray glyphosate, then it is going to stop that uh, production of amino acid and it is going to make that organism susceptible to infections. And basically, it'll die, or it'll um, it'll reduce its efficiency of that organism. So, the the connection that we found so far is that uh, the symbiosis between these soil bacteria and the plant is through some enzyme, some hormones rather, and those hormones actually uh, make the roots of those uh, plants grow. Uh, this uh, laterally as well as in, in, in the ground. And uh, so that is the importance of those bacteria is that uh, it helps grow the roots of the plant better so that the plants can absorb water more. But when you add glyphosate, it is affecting that microbiome, if I can use that term in, in plant context. So that actually is reducing the communication between these microorganisms and the plant via the hormone, and that is reducing the root length, which ultimately leads to reduced water uptake efficiency. So the conclusion of all these uh, uh, connections that we can, one, one conclusion we can make is that GMO, uh, genetically modified plants may not actually increase the water uptake efficiency, but in fact decrease the water uptake efficiency. What that means is that they might require more water per biomass weight than a normal plant. So there have been some experimental studies, but there hasn't been a concerted effort to understand the system's biology of it, which, which is what I think we are trying to do. And uh, we will be modeling all these pathways and we'll be connecting these pathways and we'll be asking these questions to these models whether if you spray glyphosate and your plant is also genetically modified, whether that will affect the water efficiency uptake or not, so that we can validate what is already there uh, uh, reported in the literature. Just a side note. Yeah, and I think this is particularly important because GMs have been sold to third world countries or developing nations like India and Africa under this 
propaganda that they're going to help alleviate drought. When in fact, uh, in fact, in India, BT cotton, the, some of the early evidence coming out is showing that it actually consumes more water. Okay. All right, we have time for just another question or two. I'll be very brief. Uh, first, I want to commend you all, commend the students and, and the doctors here for their presentation. I find it most informative. Um, I, I certainly can't ask a scientific question, but I would just like to make a comment. And I'm a Vietnam veteran, and as I recall, Monsanto was instrumental in developing a chemical called Agent Orange, which they sprayed extensively throughout Vietnam. Many of my uh, uh, veterans have died from Agent Orange from all the maladies. So my comment is just question things and look for full disclosure. And I commend you students for doing exactly that. Thank you very much. Hello, I'd like to preface this question just by thanking you for the presentation. Everybody was a great presentation. And I'm also a student in the science research program here at the school. And this summer I was doing research that also involved modeling, so I understand the importance of modeling. I was just wondering if you could elaborate on the in vitro study that validated your results. And we were speaking about uh, earlier in this presentation about standards. And could the methodology that was proposed in this in vitro study that so closely matched your metabolic model results be used as an industry standard for testing these GMOs? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer the standard part, and Prabhakar, Dr. Dunarker can answer the... So, so the issue is, I'm even saying even... The, I mean, first of all, it's hard to find these studies on glutathione and formaldehyde. That's what's fascinating. The study we found was actually just fortuitous. Um, the fact is it does confirm us, but I'm even saying even though it's in our favor, I'm saying that we still don't have standards for denoting the material difference. There sh a standard means that you have a document, they're called standards documents, that it will actually say, if you want to test the difference, go get soil that has X amount of, you know, nutrients in it. The seed must come from here, right? The GMO seed and the non-GMO seed, plant it for 10 days. I'm making up these numbers, by the way. Make sure it gets so much UV light. Pick the seed on the 15th day. Crush it using this process. Follow this HPLC. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So whether you followed it or I followed it, we got the same result. So even though this study has validated ours, probably done by a reputable lab, tomorrow Monsanto could say, oh, that was garbage research. It wasn't done, blah, blah, blah. It's a way, because you don't have standards, people use it to attack anyone who comes in favor or against. That's why you need standards. Does that make sense? That's what a standard is. If I can ask a follow-up question, if standards are so important, which I'm convinced they are, uh, obviously, what's the process for establishing these standards or getting, getting people who are in the positions to right. propose these standards, get them in place? F f fantastic question. So, by the way, most of the stand, so there's two ways standards get developed in the United States and the world. One is top-down, a government organization imposes a standard. But believe it or not, most standards are bottoms-up. So we just did a standard for in another field, you know? And you typically bring together people on the positive side, negative side, stakeholders, and you really, literally call what's called a standards committee. And the standards committee has a series of meetings until you have public hearings, you have consensus building. It's not something that's done overnight. So standards evolve, they're changeable, but it's amazing that it has not been done in this industry. 
At the international level, they tried to do what was called Codex Alimentarius right when GMOs came. Now, when Monsanto said in that quote, this is again a piece of propaganda, um, which says, you know, we have followed rigorous standards. And GMO, our GMO crops have been, what was the thing? Rigorously tested versus other crops. In fact, Prabhakar can bring it up. It's an important question. Of, okay, here it is. I'll read it to you. Go back. This says, this is a quote from Monsanto. GM crops undergo safety assessments that are more rigorous. Everyone focus on this word. More rigorous and thorough than assessments of any other food crop in history. Sounds amazing, right? Well, other food crops don't undergo any standards, any safety assessment. Zero. So a the normal corn, the normal tomato, they don't undergo any safety because they're non-GMO. So when they say we undergo more than any, it's an absolute, I think someone else used the word, right? They're lying or they're manipulating the fact. This is disinformation. So at the international level, when GMOs came, they started imposing some level of safety, like 0.001, but that doesn't mean that's rigorous, right? So this is a kind of wording that this organization has used to manipulate the facts. They spend more time and money on PR and funding professors at institutions than they do in telling the truth and showing up to a forum like this. Prabhakar, do you want to tell them about the research? Sure. So the study that we found, uh, it dealt with uh, soybean and its variant, different variants, organic, conventional, and uh, GMO. Uh, it was conducted in a greenhouse controlled environment so what they did was uh, they measured the different parameters, including glutathione uh, in uh, organic, uh, conventional with glyphosate, um, GM or Roundup Ready without glyphosate and Roundup Ready with glyphosate. And for all these four cases they measured, well the, the focus of the study was to see how the amino acid content and protein content is affected when you have a GM with uh, when you spray the glyphosate on it. Glyphosate is basically Roundup. So uh, one of the side measurement was the glutathione, and that's how we uh, came across it. And what they had uh, found was that there is an increase in um, sorry decrease about almost threefold decrease in glutathione to its uh, reduced form. That's GSH to GSHG ratio. That means Basically, glutathione is reduced when you have transgenic plant that is sprayed with glyphosate. And they hypothesize further that the oxidized, uh, o oxidative stress might be the reason why there is a lower amount of glu uh, glutathione in the uh, GM plant that have been sprayed with glyphosate. Thank you. Okay, we'd like to thank Dr. Dhyanakar and Dr. Ayadiri for joining us tonight. We'd like to thank our three student presenters as well. And we'd like to thank all of you for joining us for this rich discussion. Uh, if you have any questions, I'm, I'm sure that, that the, uh, the people up on the stage will stay around for a few minutes. And uh, again, we appreciate you joining us and we wish you a, a good night and a, and a happy holiday break.